0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey, this is uh, Paul Axon, and today I'm here with Nathan Foster. And Nathan is in Washington D.C. Now, as I understand, Nathan, you're with the Church of the Brethren's Office of Public Witness. Uh, And you've been there. How long have you been there?
0: Uh, I've been in this role since uh, March 2012 And actually in the last year or so we changed the name to office of peace building and policy But yeah, the Washington office for the church of the brother and and before that was with uh, the church of the brother in northeast Nigeria So it's just just over ten years uh, on staff now
1: And can you describe just a little bit what you do?
0: Well, it's a pretty broad mandate um, based on annual conference policy, so our largest policy uh, highest policy making body um, we stated the interest in having a, a witness, a Washington office in, in D.C. back in, the, the first actually representative was here in the 40s, um, and then officially an office started in the 60s. So we do a, a range of things. Some of it is uh, working towards the denomination, so doing education around particular public uh, policy or peace building issues, or kind of broadly uh, social issues that fit within our annual conference policy. That also includes developing theological resources and helping our denomination think through this. So, you know, working on statements, uh, helping to draft uh, red background or resolutions for our annual conference to consider on a range of issues. So we've done some on drone warfare, for example, in my, during my time on Christian minority communities. So some of it's congregationally oriented, which also includes speaking at congregations at different times or different events. Uh, then part of it is representing us and our public policy positions in Washington. So this takes several forms. Uh, much of the work of faith-based communities in D.C. works within the Washington Interreligious Staff Community. Uh, so it's about 75 offices that do similar to this work. And so we have working groups that work on a range of issues, so from Pentagon spending to immigration, a, a whole range of things. And then some of that is also then towards with other NGOs, so I can be in a working group on Nigeria. Um, so that works to shape or shift or challenge U.S. policy in relation to Nigeria. And so then we also do ecumenical relations and interfaith relations. So I sit on the, the boards of National Council of Churches, for example, and liaise in those ways with our partners Covers covers most of what we do.
1: Well, that's interesting. So, what do you do in your spare time?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm also past, I'm also you pastor, have yeah. no spare time. Also, pastor at a local church here, so that's that. that fills in the cracks. <laughs> wow,
1: wow. Okay, okay. Well, I'm glad that you uh, had the time to talk with us today. And uh, I'm I'm a little curious <laughs> because day. we're right in the midst. I know there've been protests and various activity there in washington has that impacted uh, what you're doing or are you engaging uh, the the activities there in some way
0: yeah in certain ways so denomin- denominational staff are working on various ways uh to raise concern in relation to racial justice so we're working on a public statement for example uh Presently, um, because of the pandemic and closed daycare, i um, actually my time is quite limited because of daycare being closed. I'm spending a lot of time with the toddler right now, um, so that that cuts into the cuts into what's possible. But we will occasionally also do things uh, like more like on the protest end of things. Uh, it varies. Uh, you know, there's always things that you can be doing in that way, and so we we assess where it makes sense for us to invest our energy. My spouse, who's also a pastor at the congregation and a full-time PhD student. In community psychology. She went down to there's a clergy vigil that and protests that joined in with the protesters, um, yesterday at St. John. Well, they tried to be at St. John's Church, Episcopal Church. Actually, weren't able to get there because of police police force, um, blocking them. Um, so we do a little bit of that type of work, um, but more in the sort of working group, uh, meetings type space more so than uh, protest. Uh, but yeah, so there, there are ways where we we work to support and address. So, for example, the church has statements around racial justice and so highlighting this there's an intern in my office, a seminary student who's been working with our intercultural ministries uh, director around racial justice work so education internally as well as then you know where there's ways to engage publicly doing that as well.
1: And you have just uh, published you you have a book coming out or has it has it already been it has already come out can you describe but tell, tell us the name of your book and we'll talk a little bit about your book
0: all right so the title is how ross the peacemaker with question mark uh peace race and foreign policy is a sub subtitle um it looks at the work of stanley Ross, who formerly was at duke um duke divinity school a theological ethicist looking at his work specifically on peacemaking so teasing out how peace is with throughout his work how that relates and how he explicitly articulates that around peacemaking and then in the final chapter runs his work alongside uh, some peace building theories, so particularly John Paul Lederach's The Moral Imagination, challenges How Ross a bit on his uh, minimal or lack of engagement on issues of racism, and then probably the most constructive piece would be exploring how this work uh, can be useful or can inform or in some way interact with foreign policy formation. particularly. Uh, US foreign policy formation around the question of religion and international relations uh, is the, kind of the overall structure. So works to place his work within the stream of theological ethics and thinking on peacemaking within the Christian tradition, and then does a, a assessment of his work, kind of trying to piece uh, pull, pull out threads and see how they work together, um, and I can talk more how, how I do that or kind of the, the thought process and how that gets framed, um, if that's of interest.
1: Hauerwas, I think, is, uh, of course, engaging, I think, two people. One, one, I think, as he's kind of, uh, o- along with John Howard Yoder, reacting to Reinhold Niebuhr. Can you explain just a little bit why it is that Niebuhr has played such a key role for the formation of Hauerwas?
0: Hauerwas' overall theological project, if one would call it that, if when one reads his work he often especially particularly in some of the earlier or mid writing has a lot of polemical uh, statements around uh, the American Church or American liberalism or modernity I think his primary contention um, is what he would say uh, would be putting political commitments or some other um, commitment ahead of, of theological commitments and so one of the critiques of how Ross regularly is that he somehow convinces or dis- gets Christians to disengage from engaging in public issues which again we can kind of play, play with that thread a little bit uh, i think largely how he the 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 concern that he is working at is that again people many people would challenge his his reading of wh- how, what other theology is doing but what what he would art- articulate would be that American, so I mean, he's primarily engaged at American theologians, so American theologians or the American church has prioritized a particular political theology or political ideology or political commitments before uh, theology such mm-hmm. that um, this, uh, in a problematic way, so it, it undercuts the the sub- substantive nature of theology, it, it undercuts um our ability to speak truthfully essentially the prior, the primacy or the priority of how we engage and where we begin um, is misplaced and so i mean this is kind of his broad critique and so he would say for example i mean this is where it's interesting i think engaging in my work he would say we don't you know christians don't have don't have a a political theory ahead of time or we don't have a political theory but we we proclaim jesus which then is a very political statement, but the the, the statement is theological, rather than a a, pre, a kind of predetermined um, commitment to say democracy or this or that um, political theory. Uh, and so I get into a little bit of that in the later chapter, well, kind of throughout as well, um, about how this kind of questioning what that priority looks like. So, for example, um, and this might be going too far down a uh, track. So feel free to jump in and. Uh, just um, kind of interject if necessary, but for, so for example, an example I give is uh, I sit on the board on the board of Churches for Middle East Peace, and so Churches for Middle East Peace CMEP, has a set of political pos- policy positions, which are you know essentially political positions. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, affirming a two-state solution for in Israel and Palestine. And so, my question I raise in relation to Hauras is: Is this while that sounds like we have a political theory or a political position, what I think this is actually the case is churches recognizing that we need to work for justice and peace in the Holy Land. And one way to get to this is through a pol- particular policy uh, recommendation, which is the two-state solution, which is, uh, you know, there's, uh, of course, a lot of discussion around what is a legitimate policy solution in this case. And so it, and this is where I, it, it would i think it's difficult to in a context where churches have long engaged in questions of what sound like uh political questions so this office as noted, has been here since the 60s uh, there are there are things that sound like we have a preset political position but i don't but it's hard to determine and that might be the case, but it's hard to determine where exactly it comes comes from. I mean, it, it, for most churches, maybe not individual, most churches, there's a, a whole body of theological and biblical reasoning that goes into, uh, say, a commitment to justice. Um, and so, this then is not a sort of a historical ideological claim, but it is actually. Uh, an artic- a political articulation of a a' kind of a long theological reasoning and experience of working in the world uh, you know with communities that are being targeted or being um hurt by you know political decisions and political positions
1: let me see if i get the you know the reaction is that Harawas is really uh doing a peace theology or i mean he his notion of an ethic is very much centered in the church whereas somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr was writing with a kind of or thinking with a kind of political realism as his focus. Would you say, would you characterize that as the main difference?
0: I believe that's how Hauerwas would characterize the difference and I think that's that's um, I would also agree I mean so yeah it's like a reference, a starting point or a reference point, reference point. Um, so Hauerwas wants the once political wants to articulate how the church's life is in fact a political life and how all of our work and thinking comes out of and is part of the church. And so he you know, regularly, or as an occasionally said, um, the main theological work of the church is in the church rather than in the local, based in this university. Of course, he's based in the university, but you say that the primary theological work is our preaching. And the primary life is based in the church, and all theology for should be for the purpose of and in light of this reality, uh, rather than say university theologians writing to university theologians. Um, so yeah, there's it, a, I mean, it's one of the, and I, I won't try to quote it exactly. There's a few variations of it, but he he, had, he makes this this comment about the the first the first work of the church is to be the church, and then a number of people who critique him on that will say, well, that's you know sectarian or insular and he, he he often then says as well the first uh-huh. the first work of the church is to be the church uh, but that's not the only work of the church is not kind of in the church building um, liturgically or, or something like this but it's but it includes a much broader life um, that it, that puts us very much in
1: the,
0: you know the struggles of the world and in the world that of course is a whole other question as well is it does does he actually contribute to the disengagement of Christians? or is that just people who are critiquing him, you know, reading him in a, a sort of abbreviated way?
1: I mean, I think that his understanding, you know, that, that I noticed uh, very early on, in fact, your whole, the, the very thesis that you're working under uh, is to connect theology to an embodied peacemaking. Is there a disconnect? Uh, is that your claim that in some way uh, that there mm-hmm. is even the possibility of a disconnect.
0: I think it's pretty hard to make a judgment. So, I mean, he regularly says something like, "There even the the and between what the or in the question, what is the different, what is the connection between theology and ethics?" You know, even that framing is kind of highlights the problem that there can be an and. And so he would, you know, he'll say, well, "I'm just theologian. I allow myself to be called a theological ethicist or a political theologian." Own because this is what the present academic kind of structure requires me to be kind of labeled as, but a theologian necessarily can't. Like, there's no breaking down sort of theology proper from the practical nature of kind of what those claims, and even saying what they entail is in some way indicates that you can have a step. So you you affirm the Trinity, and that means you know X. Um, I think where I have concern with how he frames it or where it's more complicated. And of course, you can't talk through every variation is certainly there are many cases where there's a, a strong disconnect between theology and peacemaking. Certainly, there's theologians who have nothing to do with peacemaking. Certainly, there's peacemakers who have nothing to do with the- theology. And I mean, even he'll say there's a there's a, a porous nature. There's no like hard boundary between the church and the world. And so, you know, you recognize that uh, so, for example, in talking about John Paul uh work, who is a Mennonite peace-building practitioner, Letterock doesn't function professionally as a theologian. He has written a bit in sort of theological space, but is primarily is as a practitioner. But this practitioning comes out of a very specific theological ecclesial community. And if he or I, I and mean, this, is, this is very real for me as well, if we function in a context that is, so if I, for example, if I... Help convene, which is what we're working on right now, convening a roundtable with Africa Bureau and uh, the Human Rights Bureau at the State Department on Nigeria. So you know, when I go in there, I'm I'm very clearly living within a church tradition and in large part representing the the experience of a church on the ground in Nigeria, which is necessarily theological. But when I go in there, I mean, my my speech is not particularly theological. I mean, people know that I work for a church, and so in that way there's a sort of its connection, but it's not, we're not having a theological discussion. I mean, my contention is that and this is what I do more in the final chapters, that the the process of doing what How Ross wants people to do is quite complicated, not necessarily in a difficult way, but complicated in that there's all number of variations of how this can play out. And even if you say, I mean, so the, the I think the tension, for example, is, you know, in people who critique US militarism or military policy, for example, which the Churchill Brother and myself clearly fit within this, it's easy to say, oh, the state or the nation state it does such and such. As. And, and so that's important because it, it allows for the systemic nature and the historic nature of how this plays out. I mean, this is clearly in discussion around um, the present uh, discussions on racial justice and the, the killing of George Floyd. So you talk about like systemic issues. But then when you get into like actually functionally working at this, say in community with the Nigeria working group, the people I'm interacting with are you know professional staff who you know are certainly working within the system. And so in this way they're shaped by it, but they're also people who, you know, if I'm a jerk to them, are probably not going to respond to my emails as well. Right. <laughs> and, and so we're less likely to have a round table, you know, discussion with them. So we're less likely to be able to, you know, in some manner shape or shift U.S. policy towards a more peaceful resolution. And so what it becomes interesting sort of on the practitioner end, when you get into like actually working at it, it's certainly easy to get caught up in the system and say, well, this is just a limitation. And, you know, we just have to live with, you know, the existence of violence, but you can also recognize that there's almost infinite number of, of ways where this is more complicated and there's more individual, you know, for example, one of the people we work with, who's a former ambassador to Nigeria, who's at a major think tank in DC, is also Episcopalian, so he really likes talking to me about. He's not no longer U.S. government, but he likes talking about church things. But we also mostly talk about Nigeria, you know, policy-related things. So there's a sort of complication or a richness to actually working at what I think how, some of How Ross's work invites us to.
1: Let me see if I can state the tension and if I'm, I'm getting it right. The, with uh, Harwas he really is, uh, he does not really have in mind, it would seem, the sort of work, precisely the practical engagement of issues of peace and uh, implementing peace that you, in fact, in your office are undertaking. The the attempt that you're doing in your life, but also in your book and and your your work, is that to bring those two spheres together.
0: So I'm working on a chapter that was based off a presentation at the there's an Anabaptist Mennonite Peacebuilding Conference uh, last June, and I wrote on I did on U.S. drone policy, and in that uh, which I really need to finalize soon, I critique Howarth a little bit and Cavanaugh a little bit. About this, so for example, it's, I think it's in the the Blackwell Companion to Political Theology. Kavanaugh has a, I think it's in that one. I think it's the ethics, uh, theological ethics, has a as a work on I think it's democracy is the the article, and in, and this happens this happens with a number of writers pretty consistently. They'll tend to say something like, um, and the exist what what Kavanaugh lays out is. They said they had a discussion about like engaging around things like food security or poverty or something like this, and they say, so at the end of their 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 Sunday school lesson, everyone wanted to do something, which is clearly good. And they say, well, rather than writing a letter to Congress, we'll do something more. Inter- we did. They did something. His, his languages. they did something more interesting, and got made a connection with a local farmer. And so my critique of this, which I think which also lines up with Hauras, is that it's easy to lump in washington as if it's a a uniform thing and so i certainly think there are ways where you know my office and people i work with can be critiqued of conflating this or that with this or that the reality is that while it certainly is i certainly affirm that washington-based policy work even by churches is not the only thing like that's not that's not like the full embodiment of what it means to am a political witness of the church it also is a necessary a necessary part of the work because what happens here kind of disproportionately affects how we you know what happens in the world and so I mean this is certainly in conversation now about the pandemic and the economic stimulus and things and so certainly the church's work is not only to shape kind of the next round of stimulus packages on the other hand so for example in the cares 2, there was all I think what the, one of the versions and I've not been following this too closely but one of the versions came out. Had no provision for international, say international assistance. The hope, I think, was like ten billion dollars. Had no, no, no provision for this at all. And so the concern is, I mean, so you could say, well, you know, that means the churches need to get around to doing doing more, perhaps. But realistically, like that has direct implications for, say, the well-being of our church or their partners in Nigeria. Um, if there's less money, then there's less ways to. Yeah. Uh, to support this, and in a context where there's essentially no health care, this means you know, that the consequences of the pandemic are you know unimaginable essentially. And so while I certainly don't think me you know or the faith community here doing lobbying around around this cares to act is the only thing the church will be doing, it also does have very real and significant impacts on very real people. I think this is where the critiques of how are are somewhat on point. One of the challenges is, and I think this is where it's hard to measure how much he has, in fact, or has not, in fact, contributed to people disengaging, is if he is one of his projects is to problematize the assumptions of what it means for Christians to say work on justice or to be for justice, which I think is a very good, good project. The the challenge is that often these things happen at such speed. I mean, this is you know right now is a, a prime example of this. We have massive protests and mobilizing around. Police brutality, systemic, historic, ongoing uh, nature of racism in the U.S., violent nature of racism in the U.S., as well as a pandemic happening, and you know the disproportionate impacts on communities of color, you know all all these pieces are you know just massive, all at the same time. And so while it's good to problematize the pro- I think one of the problems with kind of uh, that it makes it m- even more difficult for Christians to engage, which. Can slow down our response, which can mean that we, you know, kind of, it's already easy to detach in the face of massive problems. And so, if we're slowed down and detached, then the impacts on the targeted communities are significant. I mean, I think what Hal Ross is trying to do is to problematize it so that we just do the work, we we live our Christian lives in a better way, which includes struggling for. Uh, justice, but where I think it's the the risk is if you problematize too much and too extensively, it becomes hard to know how to act in what are already very complicated, complicated problems and situations.
1: It may sound unrelated, but I think it's indirectly related. And that is, of course, that Hauerwas is very dependent upon Yoder and seems to find, in other words, in spite of Yoder's moral failure, that There is no critique, then, of his theological understanding, as it might pertain. In other words, is there a blind spot in someone like Yoder? Not simply in the person of Yoder, but, you know, both Yoder and Harwas, and Harwas especially, are so concerned with story and narrative and the notion of biography, of the lived reality. And it would seem that in the very heart of this, of, of Yoder's theology, obviously there's something wrong, not simply with the person, but isn't there, isn't there a gap, isn't there something missing that the moral failure points to in the theology? Hmm. Or not. Maybe you think, <laughs> maybe there's nothing wrong. Maybe, uh, you know, what, what I'm thinking of here in particular is that Harwas is obviously such a personable individual, that friendship is so important to him. And the human relationship seems to, to be key mm-hmm. to a lot that he's doing. That, that, so the, a way of characterizing that is that the issue of subjectivity, the issue of the individual... Mm-hmm. And yet, theologically and personally, Yoder had little interest in issues of subjectivity. Harwas has emphasized his need for friendship, and yet he he seemed to recognize and almost and agree with, which doesn't seem to fit his own mm-hmm. uh, orientation, that Yoder did not uh, give a damn about subjectivity. I think I'm quoting. And it seems that what Harwas misses is that his own account of friendship comes with notions of subjectivity that are in some way diametrically counter to the very structure, the implicit implicit structure of (laughs) Yoder's theology. Would you agree so far?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I would.
1: Yoder obviously I think there is an, a development in Yoder's uh, theology and you may be more familiar with it than I, than I am but in Paul Martin's description that Yoder's theology shifts towards you know equating more and more christianity and judaism and so it, it he says that it it appears that Yoder understood a certain expression of Christianity to be very similar to a certain expression of Judaism. And in the process, then, he's pushing his ecumenical and sociological concerns, giving priority to those, over and against the absolute uniqueness of Christianity. Mm Mm-hmm. And isn't that, I mean, isn't that the issue that we're dealing with here, the gap? There is, in in your own work, I'm wondering, is there a tension, or, or do you recognize perhaps that critique in Yoder that might apply, in fact, to the tension that you're feeling even with, between, you know, with Hauerwas and and. A kind of
0: practical engagement mm-hmm. yeah I, so I, I guess there's a few pieces of this one is I, I i while certainly engaged with yoder i didn't spend a huge amount of time focusing kind of on the variation between how Ross and yoda but rather look at how ross's work kind of stands on it on its own as a as an ongoing project and I certainly think there are ways where this there there are some places of if if not inconsistency some some gap or some un- 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 uncertainty of how you move forward. Yeah, I'm not. I guess I've not articulated in precisely that way, and so i on the spot. I feel like I'm not getting a real solid, solid immediate response um, t- towards the, their differences uh, in this in this regard.
1: Uh, let me state it point blank: that Yoder comes to seem uh, to be concerned simply with social issues. Uh, more than the uniqueness mm-hmm. of Christianity mm-hmm. and the the role of the church.
0: Yeah. yeah, and so that's I mean that's I mean I think this is it's, it's partly how Howarth framed, and this is this is like how I I work at framing the chapters on Howarth's work specifically the coherence of it. I mean his he intentionally doesn't make a coherent not not that it's incoherent, but doesn't doesn't work at a sort of overarching system but responds to specific instances so for example on my critique him on race or racism i I raise this question of friendship that you have that he notes that you know a central role of friendship and discussion and so you know very simply if this is the case then it would make sense and it fits within his commitments to to read more widely engage more widely with persons of particularly african-american descent or more broadly communities of color and theologians of color Uh, and so this then helps one to bear the concerns of those communities more significantly and then respond to them more significantly. But yeah, how are us, I mean, typically, so for example, on his, the, one of the few works where he specifically talks about peacemaking, he's primarily talking about, I mean, so he frames it in terms of Matthew um, 18 and confrontation and then, you know, kind of, so it's, it's somewhat on the interpersonal level, but then also says, well, this, of course, you know, kind of loops in as well. Well, we should continue to organize for ending nuclear weapons. It kind of throws in this piece. But, yeah, there's less, there's certainly less specific and extended engagement on social issues on their own, though it, it kind of gets looped in at various points. So this is where working on, I mean, there's certainly a gap in who was, people writing on How Ross on peace or peacemaking. So for example, the reader, How Ross Reader from, I think it was published in 01, like there's no substantial section that's even labeled at all as on peace or peacemaking, even though he's he considered one of the, you know, mm-hmm. most prominent writers on you know, pacifism or peacemaking or, you know, kind of in that framing. But this is because these are, you know, so like the, I, I put this actually in the back of the book in framing, I mean, he has he has some version of this quote several points. So war has been abolished in Christ, which is to some form around war, but it's but it's more primarily a theological question and a question for the church and Christology and you know, eschatology and how this plays out, rather than a question of engaging substantially with just war theory or even pacifism proper, or certainly not, say, organizing to bring adjustments to the NDAA National Defense Authorization Act, you know, which comes up um, in, in Congress, and so like, yeah, so that in that way, it's certainly more focused theologically proper, and, and this is where I think the question around and why he gets critiqued for getting Christians to disengage is because he's primarily—I mean, he'll both say primary interest is the church, <laughs> um, but this necessarily has social implications. But yeah, so that that's certainly the the main uh, main priority in Haros.
1: Yeah, it's you know even uh, Yoder talks about they're both talking about an apocalyptic kind of theology, and so there is a centering on you. Know, that I guess that's what he means. That well, war has been ended in Christ. I guess that's the gap. Okay, we have we have peace that is established in Christ. But there seems to be a huge area of the world it ain't working that it's not being realized an apocalyptic theology. Then I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm curious that even in dealing with there's these huge gaps in in uh, theological history. I wonder. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't have an answer, and it's a problem for me. But you know, when we when we think about the history of the church, even the history. I, I would count myself the that my understanding flows out of the peace churches, and yet there is no consistent witness to peace seemingly historically in the church how do you how do you uh bridge that gap
0: so i think one way that haras does this or would respond i mean so there's someone someone writes about Hauras and saying, well, you know, tell us how, essentially tell us how to do this. And Hauras says something like, well, just get on and do it. Um, and so uh, I think this is where, you know, it, certainly it's hard to know how to capture that in writing. Um, but so, for example, if Hauras says, if your church uh, celebrates, I think he says Mother's Day or Thanksgiving, celebrates Thanksgiving or Mother's Day, then your salvation is in question. And so what he's again doing in this is uh, reasserting a primacy of the church and church liturgy and this church as the church in Christ or theology kind of this, as the overarching on everything. And so where this comes out practically would be, you know, many churches in the US have flags. And so if we get rid of our flag in the church and substantially reorient our allegiance, Towards Christ in the way that Ross wants us to, and we learn to embody that in our community and learn to do this substantially. So, for example, you know, there's a long, long, fairly thin but fairly long and uh, ongoing uh, question around taxes. You know, such a high percentage of our taxes go to war. So, if if we're opposed to war, then we shouldn't pay taxes. Either we should make sure we earn little enough so we don't get taxed, or we should you know tax resist, or we should you know there's a kind of range of kind of practical implications of this. So. If, if we're so overcome by our lives being reframed by Christ who has abolished war, then presumably this would undercut and the church, you know, in, in, in the context of America at least, previously the church was you know a major kind of portion of society. Then you know theoretically this would undercut our ability to go to war and do all these warlike things. Uh, and so I, I think the tension Ross lives in is that he's both describing the potential but also trying to use real-life examples to enliven our imaginations but also recognizes that we don't in fact haven't in fact done this so i think it's um i'm blanking on his name right now he's at eastern mennonite university he notes, for example how ross likes to talk about mennonite but he he notes, for example i think this is one of the the collections of, of works of, of chapters on on how ross maybe for a 70 maybe it's unsettling arguments um he notes, well, you know, Hauros likes to the law of Mennonites who are, you know, allegedly, you know, well-formed or whatever in, in the ways of peace. But, you know, in his context, I think he says in Shenandoah Valley, you know, because of a range of reasons and agrarian culture and nature, you know, this farming of communities that are allegedly, you know, exemplary are actually creating some substantial um, environmental harm which is, of course, then both harms creation, sort of non-human creation as well as humans and kind of all these other implications. And so he says, well, I don't think these communities are actually quite as good as Hauras claims they are. And so I think that some of the tension that Hauras is is trying to enliven Christian uh, imagination so that they can imagine what it looks like to and how their worship is already, at least in part, a, a form of political resistance and how this invites for a greater... Uh, embodiment of this in ways that doesn't say we're just where we need to be, and you know, good for us because I happen to be, you know, work for a peace church, but does recognize there's value in that tradition, and there's things to mine that, that are essentially pr- practical uh, implications for how we um, live in the world. And so, you know, one of the, one of the ongoing conversations that we certainly haven't uh, come to the end of is how does being a peace church relate to racial justice. Was clear violence, clear racialized violence, even if we don't participate directly in it or don't feel like we participate directly in it, you know, how are we in fact, as a predominantly white church, you know, participating and allowing this to exist, participating or benefiting, at least in certain ways, with the structures that of white supremacy. Um, and so it's both a recognition of the rich theological and lived tradition, but also calling us to something of more significantly living this, this is often how preaching, how we do, how how preaching happens. You're both working to strengthen theological commitment and faith and calling uh, disciples to something more, but also not, you know, in general, least not saying, you know, everything that went before is all, all bad. There's some, there's, there's some good there. You know, God has done something, has been doing something good and the community has done something good recognizing this is clearly not clearly not where it needs to end up in the end
1: so that we continually have the resource of christ unfolding but not fulfilled uh that toward which the the uh, telos of all things is headed
0: when well, i think this and this goes back to the earlier earlier comment or question around gaps in yoder or hauras you know apart from kind of the obvious ones in Yoder's uh, way of living is that you know it I mean while and this is where I think I'm I think I fit more with Hauerwas and also I'm less of a maybe a proper ap- academic is that I don't I mean he would say where the the point is not to kind of arrive at the finished product of theology where we can say we've done all the work and we're there but the work is ongoing and that's just necessarily part of it and so while there's certainly many ways where we can be ourselves, can critique ourselves and critique others, in some ways it doesn't. That part of discussion and, and mutual discernment is necessary. And even in what, even where we see there are substantial shortcomings in, say, systems of thought, there could be certainly could be instances where it's entirely wrong. But it's but there's but the 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 process is ongoing and dynamic and broader than a few uh, academics arguing with each other. And we're all invited as people who are you know, working to figure out how to live live with Christ and each other in the world. Like this is a it's not it's not isolated to a few people who are having esoteric conversations.
1: You, there is a, a wonderful definition, uh, and I can't remember if this is yours, but let me read the definition that you give and just have you explain it a bit. But here is, you know, if you asked, what is peace? Peace, you say, is the presence of wholeness in relationships that are characterized by just, justice, mutuality, and well being. Peace is not a universal or homogenous experience, but is experienced in the appreciation and celebration of diversity uh, between individuals, communities, nations and with the environment do you remember that definition
0: yeah I was just I was looking back over I'm try, I'm trying to find which which exact pages it's on but yeah that was my attempt at a definition of peace
1: oh that was wonderful I thought that was wonderful
0: yeah I mean it, I mean this is perhaps both an attempt to define something that is very rich with reference to the biblical vision you know, looking particularly at Shalom but also in the context of D.C. or activist world, so in, in pretty regularly, and I've heard a number of cases, people uh, say, well, peace, of course peace can't just be, I mean, both you say, it's not just the absence of violence, um, but also it, there's often the, the assumption, or or people are trying to uh, block against the assumption that somehow peace is just the, the kind of get everything calmed down without attention to justice. And so it was, it, I wouldn't say it wasn't it was an attempt to Block all critiques, um, but it was a attempt, attempt to, in a relatively concise way, capture the breadth of what it means. I mean, so for example, I'm reading a, a book right now on, um, but it looks at the, the history of Christian pacifism in relation to the environmental crisis and climate change, and so you know it looks at the intersection of war, religion, war, war, relig- war, and environment, and pacifism or peacemaking. Um, And so these are the sorts of things we kind of practically deal with all the time. So, for example, in Nigeria, one of the big questions is, you know, what is the cause of Boko Haram or the expanding farmer-herder conflict? Mm -hmm. And you you can make a pretty strong case that this, at least in part relates to environmental conditions as well as lack of governance. Um, But then also recognizing that it's not simply something that's housed within the nation state and geopolitical, but it's also interpersonal but it's not just interpersonal either. It also includes you know, very clearly peace is concerned with issues of war um, and issues of governance. Um, and so, yeah, this was an attempt to define and narrow down, or not narrow down, define and include in a fairly concise way the, the breadth of what needs to be included when we both, when we both think theologically and also practically. Um, But then also, I mean, so for example, the the second part, peace is not universal or homogenous experience. I mean, this is, you know, that's certainly looking towards questions of, so within for example, I was recently and still work with Christian, recently on the board and still work with Christian peacemaker teams. And so they have a framework of unknown oppressions. And so there's a, a, a recognition that how organizations function, even if they're working for peace, can be, is shaped at, in context of racism and oppression and so how do we think about And so this also is also part of the mutuality how do we how do we think about who's in position to even define what peace looks like and how does this take root kind of in all contexts uh hearing all voices and paying attention to power and who gets to define a few assorted thoughts on what was.
1: Yeah. So is the idea that peace is not universal or homogenous, that is that we cannot say beforehand or, or imagine that we know what this thing is in its fullness in any particular situation. Is that, is that the idea Mm -hmm. you're getting at?
0: Yeah. So we can't know it ahead of time. And we also can't fully define it. And we also need to pay attention and account for and work at not having a be defined and imposed and so I mean, in dc this is a classic thinking geopolitics I mean, we are you know everyone works for peace you know the military is working for peace you know this group is working for peace and it's clearly defined much differently you know in many cases it's defined as you know, the u.s dominating and people not being able to attack us uh which, you know in in my understanding um, is, is not sufficient, sufficient, and so it's it's not just a stalemate, and it's not just defined by the people who are def, you know making political decisions, and it's mean so this, this I think is where, how Hauer, uh, Ross talks about it. as a gift we receive a gift, Chris Hubner who's at Canadian Mennonite University, in a precarious piece, um, talks about some of this discovering or not, or not taking or not thinking that we can turn history to to or even even if we think we're doing peaceful things, not engaging in practices that aim to turn history in ways that undermine or belie the the very peace that we're we're working or or think that we're working towards. I think where that's difficult, and where again where we live in the tension of this in, in sort of the DC work is that this this very clearly comes up in our work on drones, US drone policies. So there's a sort of optimal vision of what we hope for. Um, but then there's also the very practical and very minimal say efforts to minimize harm done by. US drone strikes and so for example, one of the ongoing asks of some of the working group work is you know for simple accountability for and uh, accounting for civilian casualties which you know knowing how many civilians are killed clearly is not the embodiment of peace, but it also is necessary for stopping or limiting or you know minimizing a program that, Certainly harms certainly harms individuals. Um, it's again, while we don't know kind of what it is until we, we get there, there's also a question of how do we how do we work towards getting there, recognizing that there's quite possibly no arrival point or no final arrival point, or at least one that we'll witness. And sort of what are the what are the ways where we have the bigger vision and work towards communities that have you know some of these things like mutuality, well-being, wholeness. But also, kind of in the meantime, we we need to both work towards wholeness and also just work towards you know people not being killed <laughs> killed by U.S. military drones um, without any sort of legal process. And those things they they feel a tension, but they're also you, you kind of kind of work at all ends of it simultaneously to some degree. But also recognize that each individual and in each community is finite, and so we while we keep all parts in mind, we recognize that there's. The division of labor is not quite the right term, but the the body of Christ, like we all have our own gifts and calling. But on the other hand, the whole church has the whole calling, and so there's s- some degree of tension. Working to embody the statement that war has been abolished in Christ, for example.
1: Right, right. Let me let me end with uh, you. You the last section of your work is concerning race. And that that seems to be an area that, in fact, Har- Harwach has not addressed uh, in in any great detail. You use several. You use James Cone. You use the who's the Native American uh, writer, the uh, theologian that talks about harmony? Oh, uh,
0: uh, Randy Woodley, I believe.
1: And so you're appealing to a, a broad range of literature. There, I found that that section very interesting. But let me. Let me just ask you specifically about one thing here, and this is just, I'm just quoting, and I don't even remember who I'm quoting here. This may be you. The perennial, though increasingly invisible, theological problem of our times is not race in general, but whiteness in particular. Can you run down what that might mean?
0: The, some of the interesting work, or there's certainly a number of interesting pieces of work on this. And so uh, Willie James Jennings, uh, the Christian imagination is quite interesting and good. Part of the conversation previously or more previously was around white privilege. Now the more consistent language would be white supremacy. And so looking how the, the nature of racism is systemic and pervasive and uh, embeds probably everything, almost everything. Uh, so Ibrahim X Kendi's work on how to become an anti-racist. I've not uh, read the full work yet, but I've heard him speak and read parts. My office has done some work with his work. Uh, looks at how persistence of racist identity and ideas and policy and structures how this how this pervades everything.
1: It sounds a lot like James Baldwin. Uh, I I know you're not quoting Baldwin there, but it's certainly his description of the construction of race. You know, what what we have in the United States seems to be that race has become something quite unique in this circumstance, that we have all of these groups of people from all over Europe, Poles and Irish and German, that in some way have become white as a kind of identifying marker there becomes this thing called whiteness that is almost an identity that doesn't exist in the way you know in the way that it exists here it really doesn't exist in most places in the
0: world this plays out yeah so I think what you know on the kind of practical say church statement and action and this plays out and we had some conversations around the National Council of Churches making a statement and so both recognizing and naming that a certain system and construct exists and we're all living in it, even when we're trying not to live in it, but also recognizing this doesn't have, while it certainly shapes reality, it doesn't, it's, there's, it's not, we don't affirm it as a, a shaping mechanism, uh, a shaping, and so we, we both need to recognize that it is persistent, it exists. But also in naming we're not over legitimizing or legitimizing in a, a theologically problematic way. And so you're, you're, you' name that it's a problem and then we oppose it, um, but also not accidentally affirm or from this to your point of reifying, uh, not accidentally keep it going by the naming of it as
1: a, as a reality. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the question here is about I think and you're hitting it with the uh, the construction and I, I really the reference there to how to be an anti-racist that is that there's this construct in which white and black are playing I mean in in a sense we almost need to get to the history of that construct to begin to understand how that has come about in the way that it has so that it's not reified or essentialized, Mm -hmm. that in some way we need to recognize that there's a a kind of inherent falseness Mm -hmm. to this notion of of race playing some sort of foundational role.
0: Yeah, I used that um, description. So that was primarily based on Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus by um, Reggie Williams. Holding that along, that experience and that
1: uh,
0: accounting of that Alongside um, in James Cohn's The Cross and a Lynching Tree, he critiques um, Reinhold Niebuhr for writing about race in a way that he, I think the word he uses is lacks lax prophetic rage or lacks prophetic fire. Like He wrote in a fairly distant way. Um, there's not uh, or very little evidence of him having any substantial engagement with black intellectuals in writing or kind of personally through even though he was in a context where that would have been possible. And so the the distance, and this is where it's, I think, interesting on Hauras' friendship and what I hold Hauras' friendship is part of the critique of Hauras. So Cohn says Niebuhr was there but didn't have this urgency because he wasn't closely connected and wasn't closely reading or closely aware of these experiences. On the other hand, Bonhoeffer, who didn't have this previously, is in a context of Abyssinian Baptist Church. Uh, in Harlem, which is next to Union, when he spends his year in um, the U.S. on a setting. So uh, Bonhoeffer doesn't particularly, isn't particularly impressed, as maybe Charitable was is saying, isn't particularly impressed with the American church or American theology, but finds a great deal of life uh, in uh, this experience and teaches Sunday school and engages substantially and then becomes you know much different theologian when he goes back to Germany. Um, and so I use this, I mean, this is my earlier note about um Howell Ross and how talks about friendship, as you had noted, um, talks, you know, reads at least fairly widely or is noted for reading fairly widely, but doesn't seem to have um, the same degree of engagement. And so Bonhoeffer, I mean, on the basic level, it looks like Bonhoeffer being there and knowing, knowing people, you know, being with them and getting it out of uh, sort of abstract commitment to you know, justice or an abstract commitment to this or that, um, but into, you know, recognizing this is the lived reality, this is the the theological, the preaching life of the church, this is what this community is experiencing, um, substantially changes how he sees the world. um, And this is uh, important uh, in the present uh, context. And also both those accounts, both Cohen's account, Lieber and... Uh, William's account of uh, Bonhoeffer uh, uh, seemed to indicate that having, intentionally having, or uh, having uh, this sort of engagement expands and dramatically changes how one engages theology in the world, particularly around race.
1: Yeah, you want to name the reality of prejudice and racism, but at the same time recognize that underlying uh, a lot of that prejudice must be then a kind of false imagination that in some way has been built mm-hmm. up. In your work, you know, you mentioned Bonhoeffer. That explain why for Bonhoeffer, his experience mm-hmm. with, was it the yeah. Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why was that so formative for Bonhoeffer.
0: but well, yeah it's yeah it's it's certainly not just a a question of race and racism and you know feeling bad about that situation
1: that he encountered and embodied christianity that seemed to have necessarily been embodied because of the inherent suffering of black christians or maybe black people in the united states and that in some way that suffering and the taking up of Christianity seem an integral to one another. Whereas that Bonhoeffer had seemed, you know, he had engaged academically, intellectually, but it's almost like he has a conversion experience that he realizes, oh, this is a real world reality that he encounters in Harlem, and in a sense isn't that really what he takes back you know when he goes back to germany that he he undertakes a real world practical work with people that that he hadn't pursued but it is this embodied
0: that then also translates into his own context of coming into nazism and having the confessing church resist and working at resistance
1: in that context
0: is is significant shift
1: say again the name of your book and how we can buy your book it
0: is how ross the peacemaker uh, subtitles peace building race and foreign policy uh it's published by whip and stock under their pickwick uh, publications so it's on with the stock website this is one of the main areas the brother in press website also is you know, having it up and other like amazon and places will have it but it is published by whip and stock so it can be purchased directly from Um,
1: Run out and get a copy. I've found your work very engaging. Uh, It's quite intriguing. Nathan, I sure appreciate uh, your time today.
0: Yeah, thanks for talking and thanks for your interest. I'm happy to engage with uh, individuals who have questions or want to engage on it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.